This podcast is sponsored by Spotless, a new series from the Esquire Network, a sexy, bold drama laced with dark humor. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dark dramas, and tune into the Spotless series premiere November 14th at 10, 9 central on Esquire Network. About Race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for episode 16 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the diversity drinking game episode. I'm Raquel Cepeda here with my co-discussant Tanner Colby. What up, Tanner? Hello, Raquel. And joining us again this week is... He's not a shook one. I'll give you a hint. The Jamil Smith, senior editor at New Republic. Yep, yep. And host of Intersection. Thank you. One of my favorite new podcasts... Where I don't even know how. Tell me, how do you interview, like I said, four people in like 37 minutes? The magic of editing. My producer, Michaela, is a whiz at cutting down a 45-minute conversation into exactly what you need to hear. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, we, on our last episode, we were blessed to have Harvard historian Leah wright Rigger, who wrote a book called yeah. The Loneliness of the Black Republican. And then we had a good, lively panel discussion yeah. with conservative TV anchor Amy Holmes, The Nation's Michael Denzel yeah, Smith, yeah. and BuzzFeed reporter Darren Sands. Yeah, it was really funny to hear that going back and forth, especially that little egg in the, at the end. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was so funny. It's like, if you want to just join us, the Black GOP, come over to my house. I have some cookies and milk or something. <laughs> there is plenty of room on the Black conservative bandwagon. There aren't too many people there. <laughs> at least not people that are out of the closet. True right? enough. Yes. Okay. Yes, true enough. So on our last episode, we talked about Get Ready With That Shot Glass, diversity, ding, 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 in the TV writer's room and diversity programs. And we also talked about on-campus coddling. We love that you're sending us emails, but please send us more voice memos to showaboutrace at gmail.com. So with no further ado, here's a selection of what you had to say. I'm going to give it to you, our uh, Billy D. Williams of uh, Panoply. A.C. Valdez. Oh, I'm sorry. A.C. Valdez. I'm liking that. (laughs) Break it down. (laughs) Acai. Does anybody ever go A.C. Acai Valdez? Okay. That is the first time Acai has been brought up. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start off with, uh, we got a lot of responses from college students about coddling. Um, And I'm going to start off with this call that we got from Annie. One of the things that I thought about was this idea of coddling our children. I think that we forget that these kids who are coming into many of these institutions of higher learning are coming with very little background in tough conversations. Look at, for example, Texas and the rewriting of the narratives about slaves We aren't preparing our kids before they enter the collegiate environment with enough tools to deal with these conversations, and then we expect them to come fully prepared and ready to go. I think that it's challenging, one, and also I think that 
microaggressions and trigger warnings were created by people who lived outside of the margins, so people of color, women, queer people, as a way of protecting ourselves in predominantly white spaces, in, in spaces where we, even though we are there, we don't necessarily belong. And so I think that we need to be cognizant and mindful of the fact that this language was created as a way of supporting marginalized people. And so trigger warnings were used historically to create safer spaces. And the term microaggression was created to identify and put a finger to and sort of make salient for people what it's like to have these small instances where you are invalidated. And so I think it's sort of crass to say that people are complaining or people are being coddled when there are other things that we need to contemplate, like the ahistoric nature of our school systems and the inability to prepare our children for the real world in high school as opposed to college. Well, I agree with her. I think you should uh, prepare um, your children in early, as early as not even high school, earlier than that, for a real talk. Yeah, I think it's symptomatic. Uh, well, there's a couple things going on. A, you know, we live in very segregated environments, so white people live in a world where the outside of dealing with race is shut out for them. And black people as well, even though they have to deal with race in a lot of ways, when you grow up in an all-black environment and then are thrust into an all-white environment at a much later age, you didn't develop any skills in that environment uh, early on. So the earlier we do this, the better. And then I think it's also, I think we got into this a little bit about just about hel helicopter parenting in general and how kids are just way, way, way overprotected mm -hmm. on every front. But it's interesting that we say, all right, people were too protected and too coddled early on, and so therefore, because they can't deal with it when they get to college, then we need to continue with the whole trigger warning thing to keep things safe and protected. At a certain point, you know, when, are you gonna, when, when do we throw people into the deep end of the pool? I think in college. Here's the problem, is that trigger warnings are designed to protect people who have been hurt. I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily injuring anyone to... Give someone a heads up when you're going to get into something that may trigger a traumatic experience. I think that that's something that's natural. I think it's just, frankly, it's part of being polite. It's painted as some kind of great inconvenience and limitation on freedom when actually it's just simple courtesy. It's interesting because, you know, I'm a woman of color and I've been to university and I've never even heard the word trigger warnings. And I've read a lot of things that have been difficult. And I don't care about that stuff because it's like, I guess, you know, growing up maybe in New York City, maybe it's just a city thing. We were exposed to so many other things growing up in the Reagan years, right? Being a teenager during that time, during the Central Park Five time, you just have a different reality. So actually those books and films or whatever we were exposed to in college, for me, were like a, basically like a respite. Well, I mean, for me, I knew about trigger warnings, not necessarily as a term, but as a concept in my own home, because my father was a Vietnam veteran. And I didn't talk oh. about war in the house. I didn't talk about his war experiences. There are things that I knew that were touchy subjects. And oh. I think that we, when we consider what trigger warnings are outside of the context of what are branded sort of the social justice, you know, uh, you know, coddling, mm -hmm. then we really understand what they actually, what purpose they actually serve. I never thought about it that way. Well, that, then that goes to, I think, to the point we've made many times in this show of, like, the 
over-regulation of jargon. If you just call it courtesy, I, no one can disagree with you. If you call it if you call it respect, no one can disagree with you. But once we come up with all these terms like microaggression, trigger warning, then that puts it in the realm of this political correctness dialogue that gets everyone amped up for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next voicemail I want to play is from Lizzie. We referenced the Wesleyan student newspaper, and Lizzie is a Wesleyan student. Mm, interesting. I don't even remember bringing up the Wesleyan student paper. Uh, no, they banned, um, somebody wrote an anti-Black Lives Matter editorial, and that led to this big hue and cry over cutting their funding. and oh, Which yeah. actually ended up happening. They ended oh, up yes. having the funding for the yes. paper. Right. Hi, all. I love the show, and the diversity drinking game episode got really personal for me for three reasons. First, I'm a student at Wesleyan University, the newspaper scandal school. Second, I'm from Pittsburgh. And third, I'm studying abroad this semester and walked by the Cuban restaurant in Brussels that Raquel mentioned approximately 24 hours after listening to the show. I wanted to express my disappointment in your treatment of the Wesleyan Argus Black Lives Matter news story by lumping it together with the media myth that college students today are demanding to be shielded from the reality of the world as well as the essentializing of these schools and an entire generation based off of the actions and words of certain groups of students. I'd been wanting to bring the story to your attention since it sprung up in September, and I was hoping to hear an actual analysis of the situation, because, as someone who is deeply interested in creating more productive, rather than silencing, dialogue on a college campus, I want to know how a community largely comprised of white, privileged students ought to conduct itself in the wake of racial perceived, actual, intended, or unintended conflict. I respect my peers' desire to change institutions for the better. I reject the dismissal of demands for change based on the claim that the real world doesn't work like that. Students are shaping their isolated campuses into models for what the rest of the world can be, and that is admirable. However, I've seen how these conflicts divide a student body, don't leave much room for discussion, turn confusion and questions into sent inward or into closed spaces, because students fear that asking questions in a public forum will lead to their being labeled as racist. Would you consider the original article, its inaccuracies, tone policing, and criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement to be racist? Do you think that articles such as this actively silence the speech of students of color? What could have or should have been done differently? I have a little bit of personal experience to, to bring the bear here. When I started as a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania, it was the fall after a pretty big controversy had erupted on campus. There's something called the water buffalo incident. What happened is that there was a young a white student who yelled down at Delta Sigma Theta in what's known as Superblock, which is a area where, you know, there's a lot of high rises for undergraduates. They were having a celebration in Superblock. This guy yelled and called them allegedly according to him, water buffalo according to them, black water buffalo point is is that it became a whole large conversation about campus you know about what a racial slur is and isn't what have you right around that time the daily pennsylvanian which was pretty much universally white had a columnist named gregory pavlik who published a column that uh, offended a lot of people it's a very strong conservative opinion a lot of people thought that the column was racist they then responded by confiscating the entire run of the paper and throwing it in the trash So I've seen what happened at Wesleyan take a different form. And, you know, I later joined the Daily Pennsylvanian as a columnist because I felt like the best way to make sure that there aren't Gregory Pavliks, you know, on the staff is to take up their spots. And so I look at the Wesleyan situation in two ways. 
Number one, it's okay for people to be really upset with what this guy wrote. It's a terrible column if you read it. And I definitely do not think that calling for action from the paper or apologies or what have you out of hand. Um, I certainly think that they should have thought twice before printing that column. But I do not agree with halving the funding. They cut the funding in half for that paper based upon one column. Yeah, that's, that's not cool. But I definitely don't co-sign the alarmism about free speech. I think that, you know, we've seen speech limited for people of color on a number of levels, especially, you know, in college arenas. And the moment that a white conservative gets their speech limited or protested, it becomes a bigger issue. I just wish we recognized these issues when they came up on the other side. It's it's like a microcosm for life. When things affect, you know, white people, it gets taken it gets, it's received and very differently, and we'll get into that in our next and the actual main show. But it, you can really—that's a parallel to a lot of different things. I just thought college journalism was the place for half-baked dorm room opinionating <laughs> crap. I mean, that's what we did in college, and it seems yeah. to be a time-honored tradition. And so, why not let it continue? You know, I reserve everybody's right to even be racist, right? But you should have differing opinions. If right. you're going to like have a conservative voice, okay. I'm sure this should... guy wrote an equally bad, you know, strident article about how REM is no good anymore, right? Because that's what you do in college newspapers, <laughs> but just, you know, like roll with it a little. I wrote 40 columns for the Daily Pennsylvanian. I'm very glad that they're not online anymore. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I always say that to my daughter, like, you know, I, I learned about writing by doing it, right? Yeah. I, right. I'm happy that I didn't grow up in, this, in, the, in the age of Twitter and, 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 and social media and all that stuff because we get it, you know, we had the luxury of being able to make mistakes without, you know, having right. like that, you know. Yeah. This, this kid's article was a bad thing that should yeah. have just, you know. It, we had things like this when I was in college, and there would, yeah. you know, there would be another thing in the paper the next week, and a li- and then it would kind of, like, die down. Um, or people would discuss it. Like, I remember, you know, yeah. like, in my school, like, the Black Student Union would get together with, an, you know, whoever they had beef with, or, right. you know, you talk it out, I don't like you, you don't like me, let's just agree to disagree and move on. But there should be some space for to make mistakes. Right. Or hone your racism. Yeah, get, I mean, you need you need better racism. You need better really. racism. And it can't all be. Point of point of fact from the producer's chair: REM is now broken up. Tanner. He's. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I know up on you're a not lot. up on your. Did you REM. say you like you you musically agnos- agnostic? Remember you R- said REM that? was like the last new music I listened to. So. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets of the past into the light and get both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Played out against a backdrop of Jean's niche crime scene cleaning business with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death, a concert hazard, Jean, Martin, and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th, 10, 9 central on Esquire Network. Moving on to this guy who Tanner is familiar with from Twitter. Hi, show about race. 
I'm Benjamin Young Savage, or as Tanner knows me, that one guy on Twitter who bugged him about his last name. I wanted to respond to Raquel's question, have you ever been a diversity hire? I haven't personally been a diversity hire, but I have seen it happen to a lot of my friends and coworkers in the industry, which is graphic arts. The design workplace is very white-dominated and very male-dominated, so whenever a designer of color gets hired, it's something that everybody notices. White designers, similar to how you talked about writers, are assumed to be able to design anything for any audience. Black and brown designers, however, have to prove both their authenticity and because it's assumed that they were hired because of affirmative action, their skill. In design, there are any number of words used to mask intentions when picking a designer of color to do a job, typically centering around, it needs an urban feel, or we want an ethnic vibe, or it needs to appeal to a diverse audience. And it's a self-perpetuating system. A black designer will get a job requiring an urban feel. If they don't do the job well, their authenticity and later their skill will be questioned around the office. But if they succeed, they become the urban designer guy or girl, and they get pigeonholed into that one style by creative directors. From that point, it's nearly impossible uh, to get out of that rut until somebody takes a chance on them and gives them a job that truly shows their skill. Anyway, I really love the show. I've listened to every single episode, and I'm not going to stop listening until racism is over. Whoa. That was like, that deserves like a clap. That was like one of the best voice memos ever. And I remember asking you uh, to send it to us via voice memo because he sent it to us via like 13 tweets. Right. And I wanted to include him on the show because I do notice he's always, you know, uh, joining the discussion in a very impactful way. So... This is really cool. And yeah, you know, as I heard what you were talking about with graphic design, it reminds me it's very parallel to what happens with, with journalism. I know somebody who works in, in advertising and remember that Sprite commercial? Thirst. Should I be talking Obey about your this? Yeah, Obey your thirst. Yeah. I don't even know if I should be talking about this because it's like, you know, one day they may sponsor about race, but... No, no, go for it. I, kn- I knew know, some people who were in some thirst meetings too, so you go ahead and then I'll... I'll... Yeah, like the thirst meetings, like it was just to hear... The conversations that were being had and how, like, the people that were white in the room seemed to be like, you know, I, we know. We know what's going on. Like, we need to be urban. You have to, you have to be on the corner. We have to be in bodegas. We have to be, like, so the things that were coming, that they were coming up with are so, like, kind of outlandish and, like, I don't know. It was just really interesting. And then, really, you have to kind of, as an advertiser, as a graphic person, execute what they want to see. Right. And then when they see that their whole idea of, and that's just one example, of urban is total bullshit and wrong mm-hmm. then the, instead of taking responsibility they just put it on the person that they that they hired right. to you know With the right? whole, you, like the, the whole thing is so fucked up because <laughs> like when advertising <laughs> at, you know first when they first started forcing integration into advertising, for a long time it was just Aunt Jemima and Uncle Rastus, the cream of wheat, you know. And Uncle Ben, don't forget and Uncle, Uncle ben. ben. And that was like the extent of it. And they said, no, you have to have positive portrayals of black and commercials. So then it went totally race neutral, right? They just had the Con Ed guy who showed up to fix the cable was, was just, it was a black guy instead of a white guy. But other than that, there was nothing to do with race. It was just like the Con Ed guy is black and otherwise it's the same commercial. Then you had this whole black power. No, you have to show empowering, positive images of black people. Then it leads to the question, okay, well, what is black? And that became the entire defining question of blackness in advertising is what's black about it? And then you you run into all these stereotypes and, you know, the what was one of the most hilarious examples, and by hilarious, I mean tragic and horrible, 
<laughs> that it was a feminine douche product, and they had the three talking vaginas, and one was a spicy Latina, and one was like a like a nervous like a white. You when know. the hell was and how did it, I miss that? It was like two years ago. What? And they and they had a uh, uh, and they had a, a sassy black woman, a spicy Latina woman, and like sort of a yuppie white woman. Spicy. Spicy. And <laughs> and they were talking. About, and and each of them sort of had like a very you know pronounced personality. <laughs> and. You know, of course, people, the backlash was huge against this thing. And everyone was like, oh, my God, this is the worst oh thing ever God. happened. And then it came out was this, the messaging and the direction and the strategy of this came from multicultural diversity advocates who were telling the white people what to do. And the multicultural, the black and brown people who were saying, no, you need to do this because this is Latin and this is black. Or was it a case of telephone where they told them what they needed and then what came out was a completely different story. Well, right, because it comes through the white filter and, right. it, and it comes down to, to, to the graphic designer who has to implement it and he's like, or he or she is like, well, what the hell do I do with this? And so they like just That's sort the of, way they see it, yeah. Right, and so you have to, if, uh, if you're uh, a young black creative in these, in these cultural industries, you have to pick a lane. You yeah. have to say, all right, I'm going to work on aspirin and Gillette razors and the New York Times. I'm not going to touch urban with a 10-foot pole. Or you grab the urban because that's what pays, and, but then, boy, you are just there. And that's it. And how about the Sprite? And, Tell me about the Sprite commercial. I mean, the Sprite, your Sprite. Um... Well, the he, the guy who was in the meeting when they were pitching, when Sprite was pitching, there's this guy, he's a little animated character named Thirst, and he's Obey Your Thirst, and he's all hip-hop and da-da-da. And <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember what, what the guy said, and I, th- I think he quoted Apocalypse Now. He's like, I love the smell of racism in the morning. He just like, at the, at the, at the boardroom table full of white guys, he was like, man. I love the smell of racism in the morning. Like the whole room just went silent. Cause it's like sometimes you just gotta say what call it out. And and then they went ahead and did it. They went ahead and did it because it was hip hop was big. And it was like we gotta be hip hop. Or like McDonald's, you you know like McDonald's, like the, when the, the whole poetry it. scene like was really jumping, they were like, Yeah, I want my I want my, you know, my Big Mac. <sighs> It's but, gonna give me a heart attack, and, but I gotta have it. You know, it's like I don't understand what happens. It's like but, advertising is like a game of telephone. But what happens is, what happens is, and it's it, it's it's where this whole thing has gotten fucked and eating its own tail, so to speak, is that <laughs> there's this whole black advertising industry, and the financial incentives are for them to go there. Oh, and they have to keep the doors open because in order for the black agency or the black creative to get the work. They have to show what's black about it, which means ultimately showing the white person who's spending the money a stereotype that the white person sees as sufficiently black. These financial incentives are codified, like like Coca-Cola has to spend X a year on urban in order to prove how diverse they are. And if they don't spend X on urban, then and but what is urban? Well, it's black people listen to NPR, but that's not urban enough. So it, it's and not then, really and then, urban. And then saying. the whole thing just eats yeah. itself and it's fucked. Have you guys noticed, like recently, like I, I noticed, especially when I was in London and Brussels, that a lot of the commercials are uh, racially ambiguous or interracial. Like there'll be like a white guy with a racially ambiguous woman and a racially ambiguous child, and it's like that's the solution. That's that the, the easiest. That's the lowest common is that the trend now? Well, actually, you know, this brings up a really interesting point. You know what I see all the time because I watch when I'm watching TV online is the commercial of like slightly darker skinned maybe latino maybe white people going to disneyland and like the mom is this dark hair 
It's really like I see that a lot. Like, There's another one Cuban. where they're like having <laughs> right, right. Maybe they're Marco Rubio's cousins. But like, it, but it's also like if you've got 30 seconds to appeal to everyone, right? That's that's your in. That's your lane is just racially ambiguous, right? Right. And that's the easiest thing to do now. Yeah. You know who does it the best right now? The sweeper, like they're dusting commercial where they leave you a package and you open the door and you go, oh my god! Oh, Swiffer. Again, Swiffer, Swiffer, right? Yeah. So they have a guy who lost his arm, or he's like definitely handicapped. He's a white guy. He's married to a black woman, and they have mixed children. And I heard that that actually provoked like a lot of hate mail for right. some reason. But that one, they they're like covering all their bases. I met a guy, a black guy in advertising, who works in demographic research and, and marketing and stuff. You know, he was he said just last week I was in a focus group with some black kids from Houston, and their whole thing was our style's really Japanese. They're big into anime, Asian culture, and all that. It's like well, you can't draw lines anymore. And yet, all the financial incentives are predicated on continuing to draw lines between people. So the the whole industry is kind of, whether it's Hollywood or all these cultural industries were predicated and built on models in the 1970s when it was like, all right, black is over here, white is over here, buh, buh, buh. And the internet has scrambled all of that. Exactly. And nobody quite knows how to recover yet. They're in a pre, it's like advertising is stuck in like a pre-social networking, pre-email like the pre-email rut. Yeah. But they don't know. They don't understand that the internet has broken down these borders, especially with young people. Right. And like, same with television. Like, you know, I think TV is still like thinking in framework of the 1990s where you had these black sitcoms and you had friends and Shonda Rhimes and some other people are scrambling that. And now everyone's like, well, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work. But even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. We got a very short email from Chad writing, Hi, I'm a 24-year-old black man, and I'm interested in moving to L.A. to pursue a career in the entertainment industry as a writer-slash-actor. After listening to your recent podcast, I now have a concern about not being taken seriously as a writer in the industry. I didn't go to school for writing, and I have no real experience outside of my own practice. I'm just wondering, how do I avoid becoming a number in the diversity line? I don't know. I, I went to Hollywood once and turned around and didn't go back. So, <laughs> And I'm a white guy, so... My personal experience was that I was not a film and TV person. I just met some people out there and I was like, eh, I like writing. I think I'd be good at writing movies, but I'm, this scene is not for yeah. me. E- even as a white person, those white people were not my thing. So It's like, uh, I guess, once you enter the TV, film, I guess, world in L.A., because there's a burgeoning one in New York. Mm-hmm. It's like they're like cops. It's like it doesn't matter what race you are. You just become that thing. Well, so the- it either has to appeal to you or not. We've talked about about assimilation on a lot on this show, and people people interpret that very simplistically as people of color assimilating into white America. But it's like, okay, well, which white people are you talking about? You're talking about like white hipsters in Williamsburg or white farmers in Iowa. Those are different groups. Publishing Madison Avenue, Hollywood, these are all white spaces. But publishing people are publishing people. Hollywood people are Hollywood mm-hmm. people. Wall Street people are douchebags. And every every group is different. And it's like. Mm-hmm. Either you fit the culture of that place or you don't. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I actually wanted to be a screenwriter when I came out of college. I was discouraged by you know, the, the fact that I had an internship that previous summer before my senior year, and I saw what writers go through. And I saw how subjugated they are in the 
creative process. And while on television, television and film. And so I think if you have a passion for something, don't worry about who, how you're seen. Just go ahead and do it. If that's something that you feel like you're called to do, don't worry about whether or not you're going to be perceived as a, an affirmative action hire or a diversity hire. You know, who cares? Just go and do it. And I, mm. and I, I thought about that a lot when I was listening to last week's episode because I just felt like, you know, and however you got to get in is how you get in. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people treat you differently, then hang out with different people, but get your work done. And there's plenty of people within the business. And I know this from having worked at William Morse Agency from, you know, at the beginning of my career and having had relationships, professional relationships with people in Hollywood. There are people who will take you seriously. You just have to find them. It may not be your scene. You may decide it's not for you at the end, but don't not try because you feel like somebody's going to look at you a certain way. It's so much better to fail than not try. Think of what could have been. Just do it. Or or even just, it's so much better to fail than, like, worry about what somebody who you who don't cares? know exactly thinks of you. what people think. Exactly. You know what I mean? But like, you, know you don't what, know them people. But you know what happens? I think sometimes, especially with my writer friends, like, the ones that are in TV and film and even, you know, actors and people in the creative world, because work is so personal and because a lot of them, you know, spend so much time, I guess, outside of their jobs, you know, uh, and because, you know, the arts do attract a certain kind of personality, you know, like Erica Badu said, you know, I'm an artist and sensitive about my shit, right? That sometimes, you know, you could see how it could run somebody down, but that's where you just got to, I guess, develop a thick skin and just try who gives a shit what people think. Right. As long as the work is good. And don't set artificial goals for yourself. Yeah. You know, if you don't don't do like what I did when I moved, first moved to New York and I said, I'm not going to let this town send me back to Cleveland with my tail between my legs. Because the whole time you were thinking about, gosh, you know, every little setback could send me back home. Build relationships that could take you in any number of different directions throughout your career. That's helped me. I know as I've moved from, you know, talent representation to broadcast film producing to now magazine editing. Different careers can be tried. Don't set limits on yourself. All right, we're going to wrap it up with a couple of comments responding to Tanner's notion of sober responses to real threats and hysterical responses to not such a big deal kind of things. We got an email from DJ saying... In part, I think it's almost like collecting police numbers. It may still happen, but when police activity and crimes started to be recorded in detail, there was an increase in small crime arrests and a decrease in the arrest rates and official reporting of worse crimes. It's easy to cancel Mexican fiesta night on a campus when they were going to offer tacos and chips and have a sombrero on a table and count it as a social justice warrior win. It's harder to discuss why graduation rates of minorities is lower or why crime rates are higher among certain minorities. And then we got this voicemail from another listener who did not leave a name. Hey, guys, I just wanted to respond to a question that Tanner had about why the response to big issues are sober and direct, while the microaggressions are just crazy town, for lack of a better word. And I think it's because with these microaggressions, which obviously don't have to happen, and you have the people who are oversensitive be like, this doesn't have to happen. Whereas with the big things like John Lewis and Black Lives Matter, Everybody knows there's a problem there, or at least every rational person knows there's a problem there, and know that the problem is so entrenched that just screaming isn't going to do anything. When it's a much bigger problem to tackle, you have to be sober. When it's just some small lunacy, the only people who are really going to blow up about it are those who are so passionate they take the trip to crazy town. 
So I think if you look at who's responding to each kind of problem, you're going to find that's where the difference is. And the people who respond insanely to very tiny microaggressions are not the same people who are answering to the problems that are driving Black Lives Matter. It's a different population that's responding. Jamil, you you look skeptical. I'm skeptical because I think that that, that puts people into boxes. People have moments. Mm -hmm. They have moments on Twitter where they fly off the handle. They have moments in their personal life where they may fly off the handle. And then five minutes later, they're very uh, strategic. You know, I just don't think that we can approach any movement or any population as if they do not contain multitudes. And I just feel like if we talk about people as different populations based upon their behavior, uh, I think that we're getting into some very dangerous territory. Yeah, I agree. What about the first person's comment that people go after the small things because it is something that you could conceivably tackle? I think people go after small things because, you know, I mean, we're attracted to flame. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's just that's true with actual fire. And it's true with cultural fire. You know, we're going to if you see a fire happening, we're going to look at it. We're going to engage. We're going to, you know, oh, my gosh, you think you can put it out because it's small and what have you. And you, so you, you chime in and you try to do that. That doesn't mean necessarily that people aren't flying off the handle about structural racism, which is a massive problem that cannot be handled in a tweet storm or with a protest. It, exactly. It's something that needs to be you know, strategized about. Politicians need to be pressured. Right. I think it's all part of the same battle, frankly. I mean, dealing with the microaggressions while handling the larger issues is, is part of what you know, yeah. is daily life for a lot of us. Yeah, dealing with the, I mean, sometimes it's overwhelming. You're not going to solve everything by yourself, you know, something huge like structural racism. But microaggressions are, are these little fires that you feel like you can, you know, help put out. You can do something to contribute to your society or to the, you know, up- <clears throat> upliftment of your own community. Or to make people aware. Yeah. You know, I mean, awareness is a huge, huge part of this. I mean, a lot of people simply aren't aware that microaggressions, A, are real, and B, mm-hmm. matter so much that they are distracting people from perhaps pursuing bigger movement goals. If you fly off the handle about something, that's fine. You know, as long as you keep it professional and constructive, I think it's it's fine. But I just don't think that we need to be classifying people by how they behave, particularly when it comes to this kind of subject matter. Well, I think also the, you know, the white fraternity dressing up in thug blackface for their Halloween formal or whatever is something that can push your buttons. The reality of systemic racism is so boring, right? And, like, that's not, like, the videotape of – videotape, how old am I? But the digital recordings of <laughs> uh, the cell phone video of all these police shootings, even those are the flare-ups of the 9 million routine stops and harassments where something might have happened but didn't. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. the real problem is those 90 million stops where something might have happened but didn't. And those are so boring that you just look at that data in the abstract. It doesn't provoke outrage. It's just, yeah. you know, you have to take that soberly. Whereas the Halloween blackface party just immediately just it's poking. It's just poking yeah. you. Yep. It's like um, microaggressions are an expression of collective empathy. And empathy, frankly, is, you know, as we've learned, especially in this uh, racial justice moment, is not necessarily an assumed characteristic of the human race. So, exactly. you know, I think that we need to, you know, make Embrace people aware it. sometimes. <laughs> And that's why I, you know, personally, you know, it's on my okay Twitter, to be pissed sometimes. It's it's fine. I mean, I mean, why shouldn't you be pissed? Exactly. If you don't, if you're not pissed, then you're not doing anything. I guess if you're not pissed, you're not behaving correctly. 
<laughs> Indeed. This is it for the B-side of our national conversation about conversations about race or simply about race. Thanks so much for your voice memos and your emails, especially for your voice memos. And please keep them coming to showaboutrace at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter and Facebook at showaboutrace. So, you know, uh, strap yourselves into your seats. We're about to hit you with the main episode.